wrapping up our series of messages on the theme of exile today. And uh, to wrap it up, I actually wanted to go back to the beginning, uh, to Jeremiah chapter 32. So this is on page 828 in your pew Bible. I should say, by the way, you know, if your pew Bible says Creston Christian Reformed Church on the front, that's the one I'm talking about. There's a few like random Bibles in the seats. I'm not responsible for those page numbers. Um, 828 is where you're going to find this one. This is kind of, well, I'll explain a little bit more, but this is basically, this is before the exile has really started when the story takes place. It's Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 1. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar, who's the king of Babylon. And the army of the king of Babylon was then besieging Jerusalem, And Jeremiah the prophet was confined in the courtyard of the guard in the royal palace of Judah. Do you have the scene here? Um, So Babylon had attacked Jerusalem ten years before this. Okay, Um, You'll you'll remember, we've been talking about this. Um, And Babylon took a bunch of their top leaders away. Officials, uh, government officials, church officials, things like that. Took them away to Babylon. Um, And they installed this guy, Zedekiah, as kind of like a puppet king. So he's been the puppet king for about 10 years. And they were doing things like they were making the, the Jews pay extra taxes, stuff like that. Um, and, and this was, for God's people, this was, this was a scary situation. I mean, it was very um, disorienting, right, to have your leaders taken away and to be kind of under the control of this other empire. But as bad as it was, it wasn't really terrible. I mean, it was bad, not terrible. Um, And the Babylonians were actually content to leave the situation as it was. This was a pretty good deal for them. They didn't have to do all that much work. Take these people away, make them obey your new sort of king over them, make them pay taxes. That was fine with them. But then something very, we'll say, unfortunate happens. Uh, This king of Judah, Zedekiah, who you remember is supposed to be a puppet king, um, he gets all like antsy. He gets a mind of his own. And he arranges with the king of Egypt to make an alliance. Now, in those days, like Babylon and Egypt, those are like the big two rivals. Uh, They're like the two superpowers at that moment of of history. And so even though Zedekiah is supposed to be answering to Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, he makes this alliance with the king of Egypt, which would be fine, except that like almost as soon as he does that, Babylon goes over to Egypt and wipes them out. And one of the first things that that Nebuchadnezzar finds out is he finds out about this alliance that his puppet king just made with his enemy. And you can imagine how happy he is about that. And so Nebuchadnezzar, he's like out in Babylon, he hears about this, he loads up his army, he marches, I don't know, it's like 500 miles to Jerusalem, uh, and he he surrounds the city. And... uh, and he's getting ready. He's like kind of waiting them out. He's sieging the city uh, for one last push to just wipe these traitors out. In other words, the situation, which used to just be kind of bad, is kind of teetering on the edge of cataclysm, right? And this is about to get really bad, terrible. Meanwhile, back in the city of Jerusalem, within the walls, right? So they're still protected within the walls. Uh, the puppet king, Zedekiah, right, the guy with a mind of his own, uh, he's trying to be optimistic 
okay? Um, and he's trying to pump up his troops. You know, like, hey, let's go. We're going to go get them. Like, pump up his troops for one last stand. But he has this problem, and his problem is this prophet Jeremiah, okay? So every time Zedekiah goes out to try to pump up the troops, the prophet Jeremiah is like in the background right behind him, like shaking his head, like, no, right? So, so Zedekiah is all like, we can do it, we can beat these Babylonians. And Jeremiah is like, no, no, actually we can't. Right? And Zedekiah is like, we're going to do it, we're going to beat them. And, and, and Jeremiah is like, no, no, actually we're not, we're not going to beat them. Um, and Zedekiah gets so annoyed with Jeremiah that he locks him up. So verse 3, Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned Jeremiah, saying, Why do you prophesy as you do? Basically, why do you contradict me? Uh, You say, you know, this is what the Lord says, and you say all these bad things like, the city is about to be taken by Babylon, and and Zedekiah is going to get taken away, and and if you fight against the Babylonians, you're not going to succeed. Jeremiah, stop being such a downer, basically, is what he's saying. But he won't stop, and so Zedekiah has him locked up. And while he's locked up, Jeremiah's cousin, Hanamel, comes to visit. And Hanamel has got a business proposition for Jeremiah. He says, Cuz, you do not want to miss out on this deal. Uh, I have got a field in Anathoth. Premium piece of property. Uh, it's like a dream over there. And, uh, and just this once, just today, just because I like you, I'm willing to sell it to you. Now remember the scene, okay? This town, Anathoth, where this premium field is, just outside the city walls of Jerusalem. You remember what else is just outside the city walls of Jerusalem? Like 300,000 Babylonian soldiers. Almost certainly a bunch of them are parked right there on that piece of land. In the history of bad investments, this is one of them, okay? Um, This is like making a campaign contribution to Hillary Clinton later this afternoon. I I know that electoral college, but Hillary's a fighter, you know? She can pull this one out. It's like... Um, there are thousands of soldiers camped on this field. Soldiers who would like very much to kill Jeremiah and all of his friends. This is not a good investment. You do not want this field, and Jeremiah knows that, because Jeremiah has spent like the last year prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem. But Hanamel is a smart guy, Um, and he quotes the Bible. Verse 8, he says, Buy my field at Anathoth, since it is your right to redeem and possess it. What he's doing there is he's he's bringing up Leviticus 25. So this is earlier in the Bible, God's law. God has this provision in his law that um, if you're in trouble and needed to sell your land, you know, financial trouble, whatever, uh, you had to sell it to a close relative first. So Hanamel goes to his closest relative, and he plays the, the Leviticus 25 card. He's like, dude, it's, I mean, it's not really my idea. I mean, it's the Bible. I have to sell it to you. 
And incredibly, verse 9, Jeremiah does it. He buys the field. I just, I just imagine the look on Jeremiah's financial advisor's face when he does this, right? So verse 9. So I bought the field at Anathoth from my cousin Hanamel and weighed out for him 17 shekels of silver. I signed and sealed the deed. I had it witnessed and weighed out the silver on the scales. I took the deed of purchase, the sealed copy containing the terms and conditions as well as the unsealed copy. And I gave this deed to Baruch, son of Neriah, the son of Maseah, in the presence of my cousin Hanamel, and of the witnesses who had signed the deed, and of all the Jews sitting in the courtyard of the garden. In their presence I gave Baruch these instructions. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Take these documents, both the sealed and the unsealed copies of the deed of purchase, and put them in a clay jar so that they will last for a long time. For this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Houses, fields, and vineyards will again be bought in this land. Seventeen pieces of silver, and Jeremiah is the proud, though incarcerated, owner of a field that he will almost certainly never see. It's a strange story. Um, you all know about Dave Ramsey. Right? He's like the money advice guy. He's like a Christian guy. He's, he's always quoting the Bible to make his point. I don't think he's ever quoted Jeremiah 32. This is a strange story. And I think if we're really going to understand it, we're going to need to see something very clearly, and it's this. Jeremiah did not buy this field just because Hanamel played the Leviticus 25 card. I mean, that might have been a factor, but the text is pretty clear. Jeremiah bought this field because he believed what God had promised. Jeremiah knew that exile was what he and his people should expect for a long time. Uh, he expected to die before the exile was over. Jeremiah knew that the outlook for him and for his people was very grim. Uh, he knew that he would likely never even set foot on this field. And yet Jeremiah had hope. So it's mentioned here in chapter 32. It came up in chapter 31, also chapter 29. Jeremiah mentions this hope. That this exile, as bad as it is, will not be the end for God's people. He believed God's promise that their story would continue. And now this business proposition, this field at Anathoth, is Jeremiah's opportunity to put his money where his mouth is. To put his money even where his hope is. If this is really God's promise, if these armies and this season of exile, if that's not the last word, then what do you care if the world thinks you look foolish? 
If you really believe what God has said, you should take this deal. It's an interesting argument if you really believe what God has said. Of course, it's an argument that we, uh, we get out of all the time, and, and rightly so. Uh, you know, there are all kinds of promises and teachings in the Bible that we have to interpret carefully in context. Right? I mean, uh, if you have faith like that mustard seed that Dana mentioned, uh, the Bible says that you can move mountains. You say, well, you know, that's hyperbole. It's, it's a figure of speech. Or Isaiah 43, this is an important one to keep in context. It says, you'll walk through the waters, and they won't sweep over you. You'll walk through the fires, and they will not set you ablaze. We say, ooh, that's poetry. We don't take that literally. But we have a problem. And, uh, and the problem is, sometimes we don't know when to stop. What I mean is, before long, we're not taking much literally at all of what God said. And so we come to like a Matthew 6 where Jesus says, Do not worry about your life or what you will eat or what you will wear. Uh, will not your Father in heaven provide for you? To which we all say, well, you know, I mean, he doesn't really mean don't worry. We all know it's nice to talk about the promises of God, but you're not supposed to take them too seriously. It's like, yeah, God will provide, but like, don't, don't stop investing in your 401k. And isn't Jeremiah committing the fatal error of just taking his faith too seriously. I think you all know what I'm talking about, right? Like, you know, we want a faith that's just going to make you a little bit kinder, maybe a little more generous. If they got good programs for the kids, it's a, it's a bonus. But let's not do anything drastic here. I mean, I think we, we can all agree... Like, do not act on the promises of God unless you have consulted with a licensed professional financial advisor. Don't do anything weird. But then what if we did? I mean, that's, that's Jeremiah's crazy bet, right? He hears the promises of God, and even though it sounds crazy... And even though his financial advisor is ripping out his hair, Jeremiah buys the field. What I love about this passage is that Jeremiah makes such a show of buying the field. I mean, look at verse 9 again, right? Look at all the attention to all these little details that like, nobody cares about, right? Um, he gets witnesses. He makes copies. He gets more witnesses. He makes more copies. He gets this clay jar. He preserves it for many years. It's like, how many verses is that? Of Just these weird little details. He wants the world to remember his recklessness. He knows that the exile is their reality. He knows that Babylon's army is way bigger. He knows that Jerusalem's walls will not hold. But he also believes that that is not the end of the story. He believes that what God promised will come true. And you know something? 
He was right. So turn to Ezra chapter 2. So this is on page 493. We talked about the book of Ezra uh, a few weeks ago. Ezra is the, the story of the Jews returning from exile. And uh, there was a, a pretty boring section in the middle that we didn't read. It's just a long list of names. It's chapter 2. Um, and it's, it's listing the names of the people returning uh, to, to Judah from Babylon. And it's listing them by the name that they came from. So look at verse 21. The men of Bethlehem, there were 123. The men of Nidophah, 56. And the men of Anathoth, 128. And I just imagine one of these 128 guys preparing the fields of Anathoth for the first planting. And his hoe hits like a clay jar. And he digs it out. And he reads about what Jeremiah did. He was right. His people, I don't know, maybe it was even his grandson, would plant and harvest in these fields again. So the story makes me wonder, what about us? What if we acted on the promises of God? What if we didn't first explain them away or, or put them in context? What if, what if they weren't just all figures of speech? What if we believed them? What if we believed that an investment in the kingdom of God was not any stranger than an investment in our retirement account? I think that's what this story is about. It is about believing the promises of God and then finding a way to act on them. It's about not spiritualizing or explaining away every promise, but instead asking, what if it's true? You know, I've told you guys before that sometimes when I'm talking to someone who's, who's going through like financial crisis, it's kind of paycheck to paycheck, every bill is pretty scary, uh, sometimes I, I, I've tended to want to advise them that the first thing they should do with their money is they should like set a little bit aside like as a savings, like an emergency fund, which is an idea I got from Dave Ramsey, by the way. Um, it's sensible, right? Except here's the thing. So all throughout the Bible, whether you're rich or poor, God says, bring me your first. Not, not the leftovers, not what you know you can afford. God says, no, give it to me first. Trust me. Give it to me first and then see what happens. Now, I've said before, I, I think uh, giving our money away to the church or wherever I think it's one of the most radical and rewarding acts of faith any of us can do. And here I am discouraging someone from doing it. I mean, there's something powerful about doing what Jeremiah did. And there's something powerful about doing something that raises the eyebrows of the people around you. 
Because you and your church become convinced that God is doing more than just what meets the eye. This is important, by the way. I do need to say this. Uh, when making reckless decisions for the kingdom, it is a good idea to run them past the, the church community first. People you trust here. But just because you do that, I just want to warn you, it doesn't mean you're going to be off the hook. So, uh, when I think about reckless kingdom investments, I, I always think about a decision that this community made. Um, altogether, sober-minded as far as I know, um, to buy the Nijoni house. I love bringing this up. That was such a bad idea. Um, for our little church to buy this piece of property, and it was like, what? It was like a month before the housing market just like cratered, right? And you buy this property, and I don't know how many hours y'all spent like fixing it up and tearing it out and painting and cleaning and remodeling and all this other nonsense. We even set up a contingency plan as a church for who would take over the house when our church didn't make it. Because a lot of people just sort of figured like our church wouldn't make it. Uh, and so we needed to have a plan. But we bought that property. And we took this risk. And, I mean, we might as well have bought a field covered with Babylonian soldiers. Last time I preached on this message, I, uh, on this passage, I, I quoted this poem, Manifesto. This guy, Wendell Berry. And uh, Barry is he's kind of exploring what it's like to live in the kingdom of God, which we've been talking about this morning, uh, to live as people who have this hope that goes beyond what we can see right now, right? beyond this exile reality in front of us. And, uh, and he says that every day we should do something that doesn't compete. I like that. He says, as soon as the generals and politicos can predict the motions of your mind, lose it. He says, practice resurrection. I think that's what we're talking about. I mean, I know that living as exiles in this world, like our present reality, it's confusing. It's painful. It's seriously painful for a lot of us. And I know that this world, sometimes it seems like the end of the story is always just bitter death. But what if God's promises are true? And what if death doesn't always get the last laugh? What if the compromises and the confusion of trying to live faithfully in exile, what if that's not the way it's always going to be? What if Christ is coming back? What if this exile is only temporary? I think every time we, we act on one of God's promises, I think what we're doing is we're placing a bet on the kingdom of God. And we're pointing beyond our present reality in exile to something else. And so every time a member of our church volunteers to give someone else a ride again to the store, or signs up for some Bible study, or, or joins the, uh, the anti-racism team, You know, 28 people from our church have been to this two-and-a-half-day-long training on racism. Do you think any of us 
like, wanted to take the day off of work and give two and a half days to talk about racism? Do you think people join that Bible study or, or offered that ride because they were thinking, you know, boy, you know, what am I going to do with all my free evenings? When the politicos and generals can predict the motions of your mind, lose it. I'm not sure what act of faith God might call you to take this week or this year. I'm not sure what maybe reckless obedience He's going to put in front of you. But we, we can't ever forget that financial advisors do not have the corner on what is practical and appropriate in the kingdom of God. Our hope goes beyond this present reality. Our hope goes beyond exile. So every day, do something that doesn't compute. Act on the promises of God. (coughs) Bet on His kingdom. Let's pray together.